Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 6, Draco's Detour Harry remained within the confines of the burrow's garden over the next few weeks. He spent most of his days playing two-a-side Quidditch in the Weasley's orchard, he and Hermione against Ron and Ginny. Hermione was dreadful and Ginny was good, so they were reasonably well-matched. I'm Casper Tekyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Casper! Do you know that in St. George, Utah, in the year 2000, there was a video store that held videos that had been edited for appropriate content? I really did not know that. I saw it myself. But what I can tell you is that today there's a Harry Potter and the Sacred Text reading group run by Nancy Ross. And it's so lovely because it's for readers of all ages. So there's kids, teens and adults all reading the Harry Potter books as a sacred text together. So if you want to find out how you can join them in St. George, Utah or any of the other local groups, go to harrypottersacredtext.com slash groups. In St. George, Utah, let me know if that video store still exists. It was right near the Apple Pan in the year 2000. So Casper, it is your turn to tell a story through the theme of stubbornness. And for some reason, I have a feeling it won't be too hard for you to think of one. (laughs) Well, let me take you back to 17-year-old Casper. I was a student, just like Harry and the trio, uh, entering the second last year of school. In the UK, it's called sixth form. 
And in the lower grades, there was a very strict uniform at the school that I went to. And there were really only a few places where you could buy that uniform. So there was no way that you could kind of cheat out of it. But in the sixth form, to demonstrate that the school somehow, you know, respected you or like thought you superior of the younger children, you got a little bit more leeway. So boys were allowed to wear suits. But I remember like, I didn't want to wear a suit, but I obviously didn't want to wear the old uniform. And so I just started coming to school in a shirt and tie, but with a jumper or like a sweater over it. And I remember every morning before classes started, we'd come to our homeroom and Miss Connolly, who was a, a teacher I liked very much, she was a physics teacher, was in charge. And she just said, Casper, why aren't you wearing the proper uniform? And I was like, well, I just don't want to and I'm not going to. And I couldn't articulate why it mattered to me so much. Like, was it about comfort? I don't think so. Was there a bigger point that I was making? No. But there was something that I was really stubborn about. I was just insistent that I would wear a jumper and not a suit jacket. And it's just made me think about stubbornness because sometimes you don't know why you're being stubborn, but that you do know that if you stop being stubborn, somehow you lose, or that's how it feels at least. And so I'm really interested in thinking about stubbornness in this chapter about like what's underneath the stubbornness that we can see, like what's going on beyond what the text might be able to tell us. Yeah, I think that that version of stubbornness is so clear with Molly in this chapter where she is carrying her clock from room to room out of the stubborn commitment to know how her family is, even when the clock isn't moving. And I mean, it's just about fear. Stubbornness always does feel very high stakes, even though I think, yes, to your point, it can often feel very high stakes, but be enacted through very petulant behavior. (laughs) Yeah, that's for sure. Okay, should we catch people up stubbornly? Oh, I mean, now this chapter, it's, I just, oh, love this book so much. Like, every chapter is giving me drama. It's giving me excitement. (laughs) It's giving me, like, mise-en-scene. You know, I'm really loving the world that we're in right now. It's giving you the Malfoys. Although it is also giving us Florian Fortescue being shut down. More on that story later. Yeah, a world without ice cream is not a world I want to live in. A... Men. All right, Vanessa, it's your turn to go first. So let's put 30 seconds on the clock. Okay. Three, two, one, vamos. So Bill comes and he has money for Harry and they're all going to go to Diagon Alley and a car comes and it's longer and it, they get there faster. And um, Hagrid is actually the, the defense. And oh, and also it was Harry's birthday tea and a lot of depressing things are happening. And then they go shopping and they get new robes and Malfoy and Narcissa are there. And then they go to the joke shop and the the twins are so successful. And then they follow Draco down um, Nocturne Alley and he's having a weird conversation. And then Hermione goes in and is the least suave spy in the history of the world. Wow. A lot happens in this chapter, Casper. That is a lot. And that's not even the half of it. Casper, are you ready? Bring it on. 30 seconds on the clock. On your mark, get set, go. So the main adventure is that we follow Draco into Borgen and Books and we overhear him like buying something but not buying something and giving instructions and it's all very scary. And then Hermione has a total amazing moment where she's like, "Mm, I'm just going to go in and pretend that I want to get a gift for Draco. Please tell me everything. And Borgen or Burke is just like out. Um, And nobody noticed that they're gone, even though like this is the most important time not to lose one another. And that surely says something about irresponsibility. And Harry uses the cloak, but they don't really fit under it anymore. So interesting that you think that that's the most important part of the chapter. You don't? 
No, I think where I would like to start on this theme of stubbornness is where I think the most important part of the chapter is, and that's in Madame Malkin's <gasps> and yes. the standoff between the trio and Narcissa and Draco. It is a really juicy moment. And it's not pretty. Like, it's really nasty. I mean, I take back every nice thing I said about Narcissa a few weeks ago. Right. I felt the same way. I felt betrayed by Narcissa. I was like, listen, we have just generously read you, and now you're throwing this in my face? Yeah. (laughs) I was like, sorry I gave you the benefit of the doubt. (laughs) Won't happen again. Exactly. Until book seven, when you lure me into your clutches again, Narcissa, (laughs) in your wily ways. (laughs) So there's this really hateful standoff between the trio and Narcissa and Draco. We meet Draco the same way we met him in book one. He's getting measured for robes. And Harry walks in, and this time it's not just Harry alone. It's Harry with Ron and Hermione. And Draco starts it off, right, by saying, Mom, if you've noticed it's smelling bad in here, that's because a mudblood has just walked in. Well, and let's let's even take it one step further. We overhear him being extremely dismissive to Madame Mulkin, who's, like, measuring him for his new robes. And even before we hear that outrageous mudblood, like, slander, I, it, there's just something so icky about this from the beginning. Oh, yeah. He's been completely entitled and spoiled and, yeah. In Draco's defense. His dad's in jail? No, no. I mean, that's obviously terrible, but he's just been painted into a corner where he is being asked to behave like an adult in a real way, right, of getting engaged in this war. And he's being treated as a child by his mom. Mm. I just I remember a moment where my parents came to visit me in St. Louis and my mom said to me, oh, Vanessa, it's cold out. You're going to want a warmer jacket. And I was like, you're actually visiting me in the land where I'm a grown up. And I feel like I understand that level of stubbornness from Draco toward Narcissa. I understand this like you have put me in a situation in which I have to behave like an adult Do not keep treating me like a child. That's really helpful because it's making me think about the frustration that I felt with the school uniform thing. Because it was this two messages at the same time. It was like, you're an adult, like you get to wear a suit, like we respect you. And then also there'll be these incredibly infantilizing moments. Like in the sixth form, you also got to choose what sport you played, but they were super gendered. And I was like, I don't want to play rugby. I want to do aerobics. And, like, I had to petition the school to allow me to do aerobics. And I was like, why? This is ridiculous. You're allowing me to make some choices, but not others. And I think maybe stubbornness comes from the moments when we're being put into identities at the same time by the people around us. And so it's discombobulating. Like, and the only thing that you can do is just, like, choose something and become really intense about it without a real obvious rational reason. Yeah, I think that we see that so clearly with... Harry's resistance to security. He's like, ugh, I don't want a bunch of aurors like following me around, even though he loves all the aurors he knows. He wants to be one one day. And I think, again, it's like, I can protect myself. You actually all need me to protect you from Mm. Voldemort. And now when I'm shopping for school supplies, suddenly Mm -hmm. I'm not safe. (laughs) And then there's this huge relief when it turns out that it's just Hagrid is his security. And I think that just like it being a friend and there being this gesture from Dumbledore of like, I do trust you. Like, 
I've convinced them that Hagrid is enough. And we both know that Hagrid can be distracted in five seconds flat. Like as he is, as he is. Oh, yeah. Hagrid is terrible security. I mean, I read this chapter and was like, is Dumbledore actually like invisible and just chilling out here? Because how is this a responsible choice to have Hagrid in charge? Oh, I think Dumbledore doesn't think anything is going to happen in Diagon Alley in broad daylight. But what a risk to take. I wonder, Casper, I hadn't thought of this until you asked the question, but I wonder if Dumbledore just stubbornly refuses to do anything that Scrimjaw recommends or anything that the ministry recommends. Ooh. And he's like, nope, I don't need that. We got Hagrid. We're fine. Well, that would not surprise me because I think when we like when we make a decision and it's very unpopular at the time and then later it turns out that we were right, it's very easy to fall into the like, well, <laughs> I clearly am infallible and like you everyone should just trust my judgment. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it takes at least for me, it takes a moment when I'm like humbled again before I'm kind of right sized and I'm like, oh, yeah, wait, sometimes I get it right. Sometimes I don't. I just think this is too high risk a strategy for it to be a rational decision. And I think there's some stubbornness at play that that emerges in, in it. So, Casper, another place where I see stubbornness uh-huh. is there are three moments in which the Weasley family sort of conspires to remind Ron that he's not as special as Harry. Hmm. Bill hands over a bunch of galleons to Harry and Ron's like, hey, where's mine? Which I love. I'm just like, it's just when good things happen to other people, be like, oh, great for you. How about me? (laughs) Ron? Ron wants a prophecy. Ron wants bags of money. Ron's just like, whatever Harry has, I get to. I mean, in Ron's defense, he's not begrudging Harry anything. He's just like, equality. So... And Bill is like, no dummy, this money was already Harry's. And then Ron is like, oh, I'm so glad we got this big car again. And uh, Mr. Weasley is like, no dummy, this is for Harry. (laughs) And then Fred and George are giving a bunch of free things to Harry and Ron tries to get them. And they're like, no dummy, only Harry gets free things. And I just feel like, I don't know who's being stubborn here. If it's like Ron's stubbornness to like, not see that he and Harry actually are different people with like different fates and different levels of specialness or if it's the Weasley family who's stubbornly trying to get Ron to stay to your point sort of right sized Mm. and is like just because you're best friends with the chosen one doesn't make you the chosen one. (laughs) You remain unchosen. Uh. (laughs) I guess I'm just also curious about the culture of the Weasley family again on this stubbornness point Like, there seems to be a stubborn refusal to let Ginny grow up with the slut-shaming episode in this chapter, where Fred and George are like, aren't you going through boyfriends too quickly? Well, like, you have five going on at the same time, and she's like, no, I have one boyfriend, this is his name, the other name that you've heard is an ex-boyfriend, and I'll thank you for not spreading rumors about me. You know, she's on it. Oh, yeah, she handles this like a freaking masterclass in shutting up dumb boys, I guess I just wonder if it's because Ron and Ginny are the babies that there's like this stubborn refusal to let them develop their own identities. And there's constantly this like barrage of we will tell you who you are from the older people. I want to remind you, Ron, you're not hairy. You're not special. You're not rich. I want to remind you, Ginny, that your older brothers are going to be slut shaming you until the day you die. We were teasing you about your crush on Harry when you were 11. We're going to tease you about all your boyfriends now. 
Like, there just seems to be this, like, stubborn refusal to let these two younger kids grow up. Let's dig into this, because I think this goes right back to what we were talking about last week with the, the shadow of Percy being cast over this whole family again. So much of that refusal to engage with these young people as young adults rather than the children that they were is a fear of change. And, and, and I mean, I feel this, like, as the eldest of four, I look at my younger siblings and I am, like, in awe of what they do and who they are. And it makes me realize like, oh, if you're 26, holy moly, that means I'm 32. That's terrifying. I'm not ready to be 32, right? Like, I don't want to engage with this reality. I think Bill getting married to Fleur thrown in here, like the whole family is changing. And of course, we know what's going to happen at at the end of book seven. And we, we don't see the Weasleys after that loss. But we know that families have to reconfigure because not everyone is in the place that they were when the family is together. So I think this is so much about a fear of loss and a unwillingness to let Ginny be a young adult who dates and good for her because it means like, wait, I'm Fred or I'm George and I'm single. I may be successful in my business, but like, where's my love life at? You know, like everything about the other is actually always also about them. No, I think that that makes a lot of sense that I'm just trying to think of, so the moments where I get really stubborn are moments in which my sanity has somehow come into question Mm. or my competence, right? Like, I mean, this is to your exact point. Something about my identity has been questioned. Yeah, I think that's so true. And And I think it's this weird mix of like, our identity is being questioned with something very, very small. It's not the kind of huge stakes situation when stubbornness feels like too small a word to really describe that. This really feels related to two characters that we at least hear of in this chapter. Like in some ways, I think of Hagrid as being one of the most stubborn people in in the books, just in terms of some of the choices he makes around the kind of uh, magical creatures that he keeps and the ways in which, you know, he literally says like, oh, Buckbeak, I mean, Weather Wings is, <laughs> you know, is doing just fine. And it's like, I mean, it really seems to be unwillingness rather than un- un- unable to kind of act smartly when being observed. Versus, so he's at the small level, versus someone like Florian Fortescue, who we know his shop has been emptied, right? Like it's closed down. And I wondered if there's something about stubbornness at the scale of resistance, which is interesting to explore in this text, because you can be very brave and also kind of foolish and end up losing your life. Like, I don't know what to make of Florian's store being closed down. Is it because he's stupid or brave? Is it Was he being stubborn about not adjusting to this new regime? Or is that something that's really good? I don't know. Or was he stop- Was he being really principled and kind of foolish in his principledness so that now we've lost a potential place for revolutionaries to meet over ice cream. I mean, you need look no further than my grandfather Hmm. for like an absolute case study in this, which is he got picked up the second time he got picked up by the Gestapo. He was like technically safe. He had a Catholic passport and was in Southern France. Wow. And he was going to a resistance meeting and I swear, I like wish he was still alive so I could get him on the phone to tell the story. <laughs> but the way that he used to report it was that he saw a Gestapo car out front and like talked himself into like, I'm not letting that car scare me <gasps> and walked into the resistance meeting anyway. Oh my and God. you're like, why? Why? And like, I think it is that same stubbornness 
plus 99% luck, but a little bit of the stubbornness that, like, allowed him to survive. Right. But he was pathological. And it was a completely unnecessary risk. And, like, just don't go to that resistance meeting. Like, geez, there's a middle ground. But he, my mom once wouldn't pick him up to take him somewhere. And he was 90 four, 95 years old, because my mom was like, nope, it's too hot out. I'm not taking you to visit your friend in the hospital. You are 94 years old. You are to stay home in the air conditioning, and I will come by later today to visit you. Yeah. My mom was driving to visit him. He was hitchhiking <gasps> to visit his friend at the hospital. She picked him up, and he was just like, well, you're not going to keep me from visiting my friend. He was, like, fainting, and she was just like, I get, like, how stubborn do you have to be to be 94 years old and be like, my daughter won't drive me in 100 degree heat. I guess I'll hitchhike. So like to the day he died, it was just this, yeah, stubbornness. And it was his identity as an independent person, right? right. right? Like the Gestapo is not going to stop me. Heat's not going to stop me. My daughter's not going to stop me. And it was an absolute pathology. And I can imagine Florian like... Putting up in his windows, like, down with Voldemort and, like, ice creams for Harry Potter. Things that are amazing and awesome, but, like, also immediately led to his removal, you know, and and, and potential death at this point. I mean, we, we see what happens with Igor Karkaroff, who I actually kind of regret not talking about more when we were with him in book four. Yeah. Obviously, he was the, the head of the Durmstrang school that escaped as he realized that Voldemort was returning. And he's been on the run for more than a year, like a year and a half at this point, which to escape detection from Voldemort if you're being hunted down for that long. I mean, that's even longer than Horace Slughorn, right? Like, that's real skills. But we know at this point that his end has come. And so it's like, he could have turn to Dumbledore, I really think. But we saw him have these kind of standoffish moments with Dumbledore during the Triwizard Tournament. And I think he's just too too proud or perhaps too stubborn to kind of ask for help. Like, there's something about when we're stubborn that we kind of only trust ourselves, that there's no one else whose advice we'll take, that we only listen to our own instincts, even if they've been wrong before. Like, there's something very small about stubbornness. There's something very self-centered, ultimately, about it, which I think we do see in Karkarov. And, and frankly, that in his case, it is not enough to keep him alive. And I, I think that's important, that that stubbornness might be a way to endure a moment, but it's not what's going to get us to a place where we actually want to be. So here's a question, pushing back on that idea of stubbornness. Isn't it Fred and George's stubbornness that gets them to open this shop? Right? Like, Molly is like, nope, can't do it. And they're just like, we are definitely going to do this. And, like, they are just being so stubborn and not listening to their mother would you say that that wasn't stubbornness? That was something else? Well, but but for me, they're together. Like, that's what's different, is it's not one of them. I don't think either one of them could have done it on their own. I mean, that's what we've always loved about the twins, is that there's this friendship between them. I think that's that's what I love about them, is that even what they're doing is about creating joy for other people. I don't know, there, there's something that doesn't seem self-referential, even earlier on when they're just playing around with recipes, as it were. Okay, well, what about their stubbornness to not give Ron anything? I mean, that's just hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, that whole situation is so interesting to me because it just replicates the model of Harry being richer because Harry is allowed to take whatever he wants for free. And just this, like, Ron getting the sloppy seconds of Harry. Nobody's letting Ron enjoy anything, and he's just always getting whatever Harry is, like, willing to throw his way. 
I really felt for Ron in this chapter. Justice for Ron. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app, and when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Casper, where else did you see this theme of stubbornness in this chapter? Well, there's a really visual place that it struck me reading at this time. Like, as we enter Diagon Alley, the first thing we notice is how completely empty the leaky cauldron is. You you just see how much the economy has changed, right? Like the leaky cauldron is struggling. We've talked about Florian. There's other stores that have been closed up. And yet at the same time, there's this whole informal economy that springs up. People selling charms and amulets and all sorts of things that might protect you. You know, whether they work or not is a different question. And Arthur even says, you know, if I wasn't off duty, you know, I'd be arresting these people because they're mostly shams. But the thing that really struck me is how stubborn that perhaps the human spirit is or at least the kind of entrepreneurial drive which is that like in any situation people are gonna find a way to like sell something or make money and i think of like even during times when when entire currencies fall away right like the bartering of coupons during rationing for example in britain or any place that that had rationing i was struck that kind of at like a systems level there's this resilience or like a stubbornness of of the human spirit that seems to survive (laughs) certainly of capitalism that seems to survive well i mean maybe that's what i'm i guess that's the point i'm making is like the stubbornness of capitalism and and that's about self-interest and it's about opportunity but it's also about yeah people are willing to pay you there's going to be someone who's willing to sell it you know for good and bad vanessa where else do you see this theme of stubbornness show up 
So the place that we have to talk about is what happens in Borgen and Burks, right? This conversation yeah. between Draco and the proprietor and then what they overhear with the extendable ears and all of that. And I wonder if Draco's identity is a Malfoy is what is at stake. Mm. And he is stubbornly like finding a solution to this problem that he has no matter what. It's remarkable how on his own he is, right? Because he says to the attendant in the store, like, now keep this to yourself. Don't even tell my mother. So we're seeing him really isolate himself, even from his fellow Malfoys, as it were. Yeah. So I guess my question is, is it stubbornness if you have no choice? Like, a gun is basically to his head, right? Like, he doesn't have a choice. But he is going after this. And we're going to watch him throughout the books, right? Just like working himself to tears over this. Yeah. And so is it stubbornness or is this just fear or like, is is it something else? I mean, as ever with these things, it can be multiple things and it feels yeah. like that's true. I mean, what I'm seeing now with this Draco example is how stubbornness can be like a, just like a prison or or at least an imagined one where we feel like we are the only people who get it. And that there's no one who can help. And and I just don't think that's true for Draco. Like, can you imagine if he approached Dumbledore now? It wouldn't be too late, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I wonder if sometimes we pretend that it's us being stubborn when there's something bigger at stake, right? So it's yeah. like, no, I'm not going to ask anybody else for help. When really the way we feel is like nobody else would actually help me. Or no one can help me. Like it's beyond help. Because that's how Draco feels for sure. Right. And so it's easier to sort of pretend that we're being stubborn. Yeah, I think sometimes I will insist on doing something myself because deep down, I think that nobody would actually help me anyway. So Mm -hmm. I might as well Mm -hmm. just sort of get control of the story in my head. And be like, no, I want to go to the doctor by myself when really, like, maybe it would be nice if somebody came with me. So I think sometimes I I perform stubbornness when really there's something else going on and there's actually just fear happening under it. Yeah, I think that's very wise. And so, yeah, I think that it's entirely possible that Draco is like, you will do it for me and you will do it in this way. When really it's like a blustery cover for the fact that he is terrified. A hundred percent. Casper, it is your favorite time of the podcast and mine when we do a sacred reading practice. And this week, again, we are going to be doing the classic Lectio Divina. And I am just going to put my finger somewhere and we will see what sentence we will treat as sacred today. Well, wow. What you got? They'll be murdered in their beds. Whoa. She whispered. Okay. (laughs) So... This is Molly, and it's her response to seeing the you know, don't worry about you know who, worry about you know who. Oh, the poster in the Son. Weasley shop. Mm-hmm. She has just regulated Ron. The Weasley household is a no jokes yeah. zone. Yeah. And she is walking into this joke shop, and she's like, this is the opposite of the regulation that I've made up in our house. And... 
she is afraid that they are going to be murdered in their beds, the twins. Well, I mean, what's what's so striking is that when she sees the poster, they're still standing outside. And and we hear in the text that no one stops to talk to one another anymore in Diagon Alley. Like everyone has the hurried kind of scared look that, that Molly does, and obviously for good reason, which makes this poster so egregious. Like it, it is so whimsical and funny and directly attacking Voldemort even like she doesn't even say this because she's angry she just says this because she is shocked she's like they're gonna be murdered in their beds no you know I feel for her so much but at the same time I just freaking love this poster so much (laughs) you're a child you just like it because it has the word I mean who does it (laughs) adults okay (laughs) So step two of Lectio Divina, we ask ourselves what this reminds us of allegorically. So what stories or metaphors does this remind us of? So the sentence again is they'll be murdered in their beds, she whispered. I immediately thought of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Oh, say more. I mean, just like the fact that your bed is like a sacred place where you're supposed Mm. to feel safe. And instead you come home and some annoying little girl is in your bed, right? Like. It takes extraordinary, like, fairy tale or horrible moments for your bed to cease to be a safe place. Mm-hmm. Vanessa, can you read this sentence again? They'll be murdered in their beds, she whispered. Oh, well, I think of Macbeth. I think of Macbeth entering King Duncan's bedroom. And, of course, the Scottish play is is one that's so centered around murder and the question of murder or not murdering and what it means when you've done a murder and how, you know, how how you're haunted by yourself or by others when you have done it. I mean, obviously the phrase that Molly is uttering is they'll be murdered in their beds, as in this is not going to be good for Fred and George. But what I like about that echo of Macbeth is that we're reminded that actually it's not going to be good for the murderer either. So there's a sort of, not, not just a curse on both your houses, but whoever's igniting that kind of aggression and terror, like no terror reign can last forever. And this one doesn't either. And I, I, th- I that's a maybe a too hopeful a message, but I'm, I'm reminded of that. The other thing that it reminds me of is the fact that she whispers this. I feel like there's a lot of that conversation like around the word cancer, right? Yeah. That people will want to whisper the word cancer or whisper the word died or... Or miscarriage or, yeah. Right. Like we whisper words that we like almost like don't want God to hear. Mm. And so the fact that she's whispering, they'll be murdered in their beds. It's not this like exclamation of like, you idiots, you'll get murdered in your beds. Like she doesn't want to articulate it because she's so scared it'll happen. I mean, she's, she's saying it to herself. Like it's, it's a thought that she's having that becomes words. Like it's not a conscious articulation. And, and often those things are the most intimate things, right? Like when we're scared, when someone jumps out at us or in pleasure or in pain, we verbalize things that maybe we wouldn't want other people to hear. It's an internal thought that has kind of escaped her. Okay, so step three is where we ask ourselves what this reminds us of in our own lives. And again, the sentence is, they will be murdered in their beds, she whispered. I just got a photograph of my youngest sister racing on a like downhill mountain bike. And I was like, she's going to die. Like, this is insane. You know, just with this backdrop where you're like, no, stop. And it's just, it's terrifying because you're like, if I was there, I would die. Like, I could not survive this. And I think there's something about that if Molly was doing this, she probably would be murdered in her bed. But maybe there's something about the twins 
because they're together, because they've installed all sorts of booby traps around their bedroom. Like, I don't know what it would be, but like that they can survive this as they do. They do and they don't, though, right? I wonder if part of the reason why they are killed and others are not is because they're being fought a little bit harder in the battle. I I mean, obviously, only Fred is killed. But, you know, the people fighting against them hate them a little bit more Mm -hmm. because they brought attention upon themselves. And that isn't me judging them. Like, I think that they are taking risks and that they're just comfortable with the risks. I don't think Molly is wrong. Yeah. What does it remind you of in your life, Vanessa? I think it reminds me of me and the fact that I can see something really beautiful and just see the worst possible version (laughs) of it. Like only see sadness, Mm. like fireworks at a wedding. I'm like, well, this is a waste of money and bad for the environment. Like it's just my she has just walked up and seen her children thriving. And her first thought is they'll be murdered in their beds. I just can see something so beautiful and be like, here are all the downsides. Okay, so step four, we ask ourselves what this makes us feel called to in our own lives. And so again, it is, they'll be murdered in their beds, she whispered. The word bed really stands out to me. As you know, I'm I'm mid-moving house and buying a bed uh, at the moment, and so... I'm thinking about the way in which we kind of create these like nest spaces. And you mentioned how intimate a bed is, you know, because we're so vulnerable when we're asleep. And I'm I'm just thinking of the ways in which I might feel extra safe in my bed. Maybe my action is as simple as when I go to bed this evening, just to like really consciously not try and like hold on to thoughts as I fall asleep and, you know, that I wake up and I remember them, but just to be like, oh, I'm just going to release myself completely to the safety of this bed, like that I have set up all the safety precautions I can, you know, I've written down all the to-dos, like I'm just going to completely melt into this soft feather down delight that is my bed. Wow. You and I are so different. <laughs> what What does it call you to do? I feel called to whisper more. I just feel like whispering is fun. It's conspiratorial. I feel like whispering is almost only a good thing, except when you're gossiping about other people. But other than that, you are either sort of like issuing a prayer, which is what Molly is doing, right? She's like, please, God, let them not be murdered in their beds. Or like the person who I whisper with most probably is the seven-year-old in my life. And like, I love whispering with her. And so I just feel like there's something, yeah, very intimate and lovely and beautiful about whispering that Mm. I I think that that is a tone of voice that I should use more. Mm. That's lovely, Vanessa. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. 
They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week's voicemail is from Kath. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. This week's theme of your podcast, Prudence, really touched me. In my country, since July, there have been protests every Saturday. The police beat up and arrest hundreds of people, some for reading the Constitution, some for just being on the street. And every Saturday, I stay home. I worry for my physical safety, And I know that I won't be able to leave the country and continue to study in the U.S. if I get arrested. I also have qualms about the effectiveness of peaceful protest in a profoundly undemocratic setting. It feels futile. But still, I know that it is prudent to stay home, to keep my head down, and every day I wrestle with the guilt over my decision. Why is it that I think it's prudent to stay home while some high schoolers get beaten up by the police? It feels right to finish my education, obtain a bigger platform, and then use it to advance human rights rather than lose the opportunity in a quick, violent, and ineffectual way. But because this line of thinking aligns with my fears, I question it every day. Do I really believe this, or am I rationalizing? As Vanessa said, someone looking from the outside would think that I'm just fine with all of this. That's it. Um, I don't have any answers. I would like to hear what you think. Kath, thank you so much for your voicemail. I'm going to turn to what a very wise man once said to me. His name is Casper (laughs) Turkile. And, you know, Casper, something that you said in that episode was that it it should still feel like you're taking a risk. And I think that, Kath, you're, you know, you're talking about that, about building up your skills in order to take a different risk than the risk that you are presented with now. But I think that this is a really live question for all of us. I want to be part of the resistance. I want to be on the right side of history. Where is it that I should fit in to that? Am I in the Order of the Phoenix? Am I in Dumbledore's army? Am I Dumbledore? Or also, like, am I Madame Pomfrey? Or am I, you know, am I someone who's supporting the people who are 
on the front line. And maybe that's financially. Maybe it's like when when I went to the UN with my climate activist crew, my mom asked, like, shall I come and bake cakes for you? <laughs> At that time, I was like, oh, that's so dumb. But now I'm like, oh, my gosh, actually, that's really powerful because it's about knowing what you can give to support the wider movement. I think I think there's an ecology of action and support and finding where we fit in. Like you said, Vanessa, that is still stretching us, but is also acknowledging the realities of whether it's our immigration status or the parenting responsibilities or, or whatever else it is that we have where where it gets more complicated. So I love this voicemail and I, and I, I love that reflection to think about where do we fit in. Um, so thank you. Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone from the pages of this chapter. And there are some good options. I'm curious who you are choosing to bless today. I am choosing to bless Madame Malkin. Yes. She is put into such a horrible situation. And she really conjured for me the image of like teachers who are in the middle of a school shooting. Oh, wow. Right. Just like people who are put in situations where it's like, this is not my job. I am a seamstress. I am not supposed to have to say wands away. Don't use hate speech. Like, this is a ridiculous situation that she is in. And like, this is an incredibly violent, high tension moment. And that is like not why she went into the the robe making business. And I think she handles the situation really artfully. She stands up and, like, has boundaries and is like, we do not need to use language like that. You put your wands away. And then at the same time doesn't get overly involved. Is like, this isn't about me. But, like, these are the boundaries of being in this shop. I just feel for her. Like, what a terrible hour at work. And it says that she's glad to see the backs of the trio when they leave. And, like, fair enough, Madam Malkin. Oh, I love that blessing. And I, lo- I love it especially because my blessing is for Burke, the, uh, uh-huh. the other store owner that we see. And if anyone has ever worked in retail, you know how horrible it can be to deal with members of the public who are just so dismissive. And and I would say Madame Malkin is very generous and Buck is like way, <laughs> way more intense. Like Hermione comes in and tries to be like, oh, um, is this for sale? Is this for sale? And she's like, I'm so rumbled. So she's like, basically, I want to buy something, but what did Draco buy? And he's, he just has one word, which is out. I think it's like, I don't want anything more to do with this whole Draco palaver. So I'm just shutting this down straight away. So I, I guess anyone who is willing to forego financial gain in order to maintain that dignity, like a blessing for you. And just, yeah, both Madame Malkin and Burke, you can, you can channel them both. (laughs) You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about this episode. Or come and join the 1,200-plus people supporting us on Patreon. We have new perks, including a Meet Me in Mallorca sticker for $5 and up, and an enameled drink mug for $15 and up, and all levels get extended blooper reels. And boy, do we mess up a lot, so they're really fun. You can leave us a review on iTunes. You can also send us a voicemail. We love Love to hear from you, and we hope to see you at one of our live shows in Cambridge, Massachusetts on October 2nd, Washington, D.C. on November 7th, Chicago, Illinois on November 21st, or St. Louis, Missouri on December 19th. Next week, we'll read Chapter 7, The Slug Club, through the theme of glamour. 
This episode is produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Chelsea Erson. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of Night Vale Presents. We would like to thank, as always, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Balsell. We will talk to you next week. Thanks, everyone. And for our American listeners, a jumper is a sweater? Yes, exactly. But more nice, because it's British. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, in America... It's nicer, not more nice. (laughs) I knew that was coming as soon as I said it. (laughs) And totally deserved. (laughs) No, not.